Amen. Please turn your Bibles to Psalm 4, where we will begin this morning as we consider the topic of emotion. Bruce Ware, a helpful theologian, rightly describes the sentiments of many concerning emotion when he says, human emotions, it seems sometimes that you can't live without them and you can't live with them. Emotions are a hard thing for many. Some live as if they don't have emotion. Some live as if they can't breathe without expressing their emotion. Some exude godly emotion. Some do not. Some try and hide their emotions. Some should try and hide their emotions. Emotion is really, seemingly, nearly always an issue of some sort for everyone. So I want to lay the foundation and just consider emotions very broadly this morning. And we'll begin attacking particular emotions tonight with Pastor Steve. But I want in the back of your mind a question like this. Did Jesus save my emotions? Well, of course not. He saved your soul. He saved your life. But how does our Savior expect us to live with our emotions? In our redemption, are our emotions redeemed? Are those who are redeemed responsible for their emotions? Do our emotions matter? Are we even supposed to have emotions? Are they necessary to glorify Him? Are they purely problems to stifle? How are we to live for God with our emotions? Can our emotions be sanctified? If they can, then how do we pursue sanctification with our emotions? I would suggest emotions are necessary to honor God. They're an essential reality of who we are created in His image. We need to understand emotions better than we do because, well, we just need to look around and consider we struggle understanding emotions. And so as we jump into this series to consider all the feels, today I want us to begin by laying a biblical foundation for our emotions. And we'll begin today using a very simple rubric that we'll try to use in all the guys as we go through different emotions. Here it is. You don't have to write it down. It'll be there for you every, every week. But as we work our way through specific emotions and determine how to be sanctified in these emotions and live as our Savior did with emotions that glorify our Father, we'll be contrasting God's wisdom often with the current wisdom of our age. Why? Because the current wisdom of our age has so captured and dominated the discussion on emotion, the wisdom of the world. And so as we begin, turn to Psalm 4 and stand with me, a psalm that's full of a variety of emotion, um, but a psalm that finds its greatest and most perfect expression of emotion and submission and trust to the truth and eternal character of God. Psalm 4. It begins with an inspired heading to the choir master with stringed instruments, the psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. 
You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you this morning to consider emotion such an integral part of our lives, help us to see the beauty of your truth and how it's sufficient for our understanding of what emotion is and how we're to live lives full of emotion, lives that make much of you through our emotion. Help us to see how our emotion is redeemed. Help us to see how our emotion finds its root in Genesis and your truth and comes from what you've done and how you've created us. Help us to take this timeless wisdom that you've given us in your word and evaluate what we understand today and submit to you and your truth. Help us because we need it. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you. You may be seated. As we consider emotions and today seek to lay a biblical foundation for emotions, I trust you will learn how important emotions are. Emotions are the reflections in our heart of creation that has been created uniquely and specifically and wondrously and gloriously in the image of God. And what creation would that be? Us, mankind, different from the rest of the world that God created. Your emotions can glorify God with eternal praise or be the reason that his son was hung on the cross. To pretend your emotions don't matter or to pretend you have no culpability for your emotions is to stick your head in the theological sand. To pretend your emotions are not your responsibility is to pretend God's word doesn't have authority in your life. Your emotions matter. So how can we understand them? Well, we'll begin by defining the terms. And since the world of emotion has become a topic nearly universally considered to be best understood outside of the Bible, I'm going to be contrasting worldly wisdom with divine wisdom. Maybe you think that's strange. But as a pastor, here's what I think is strange. When people come into my office who claim to be in Christ and choose to consult everything but Christ on how to deal with their emotions... Putting the world's view on emotion above God's view on emotion. So I'm going to do my best to show you the insufficiency of the worldly wisdom you're acquainted with or the anti-biblical nature of the worldly wisdom that you've taken on. We'll do that to begin by considering how the world defines emotion and contrasting that with how the Bible defines emotion. How does the world define your emotion? According to the American Psychological Association, emotions are conscious mental reactions such as anger or fear, subjectively experienced as strong feelings, usually directed toward a specific object and typically accompanied by physiological and behavioral changes in the body. That's just how we understand emotion. In understanding emotions, there's often lists or categories. Uh, the Berkeley Wellbeing Institute recently published a list of 271 emotion words that all point to different emotions. That's a lot. Normally, there's a list of core emotions. This is pretty normal to have a list of core emotions, something like the differential emotion scale four. It says our core emotions are interest, joy, surprise, sadness, anger, disgust, contempt, self-hostility, fear, shame, shyness, and guilt. Those are all emotions that we all experience all the time, every day, 
Over and over, we experience these emotions. Emotions have been a fascination and a curiosity of mankind since history was recorded. Since the Greeks especially, and the philosophers particularly, emotions have been an object of interest to define and determine where they came from. And within the definition of emotion is often the origin of emotion. There's normally a link in a worldly understanding of emotion to one of two things. The first being circumstances or environment with a host of external forces being the actual source of emotion. And then secondly, it would be the link to our physical body and brain, more of a biological source. So often emotions are considered to be produced by an external stimuli of some sort or come from a function of the body. External forces is probably the easiest to understand. We see a snake and we feel scared. Makes total sense. The internal makeup of our body being the cause of emotions becomes more difficult to quantify. It goes way back, all the way back to the Greeks. You've heard of their humors, not their jokes, but the four humors, blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. You probably learned about that in history at some point. You're thinking, I don't need to know this. Oh, but you do. And you do know this. You just don't know where it came from. Often theories on emotion today are built on neurophysiology and employ the investigation of neurohumoral mechanisms. You say, I don't know what that is. Yes, yes, you do. Things like serotonin. Serotonin was at the root of the neurochemical imbalance theory that took off in the late 70s and 80s and persists to this day. This theory of chemical imbalance has been challenged for decades to not be scientifically defendable, though it's often portrayed as fact. The chemical imbalance theory has been abandoned by many in the world of neurophysiology. Nonetheless, the chemical imbalance theory gave skyrocketing fame to selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Say, I don't know what that is. Again, yes, you do. It's called Prozac and many other forms. The effect of SSRIs, while wildly inconsistent, full of side effects, have remained a desirable way for many to manage or affect a variety of emotions. So you can find that information, compilation of DSM-5, American Psychiatric Association website, and American Psychological Association's website. I'd suggest and guess there's a large overlap in your personal understanding of emotion from what you just heard. Often a Christian's understanding of emotion is identical to the world's understanding of emotion. That should cause concern. If we understand emotion like the world, then we will pursue changing emotion like the world tells us. But I wonder if there's more to emotion than reacting to circumstances. I wonder if there's more to emotion than neurophysiology can tell us. Well, how would we know? We can consider the Bible defines emotion. I would say that from beginning to end, the Bible is a book full of emotion. It's absolutely more than that, but you cannot say it's less than that. And so when Christians fail to define emotion biblically, it's naivety at best, or laziness and worldliness at worst. God has not left an understanding of emotion up to the world. God has given us an understanding of emotion in his word. In many ways, defining emotion or describing emotion, the observable realities of emotion, that's not what's difficult. Both the world and Christians would agree on lots of things, lots of realities about emotion. We, we would quantify the same things as anger or joy or fear 
or sorrow, but the Bible adds a dignity to these emotions of humanity that no worldly system can offer or foster. And the Bible gives us the source of these as something that's better than we can ever imagine. The Bible adds a responsibility to reflect the dignity and glory of God in our emotion as a responsibility that God puts onto man. And this responsibility for emotion is a responsibility that every single system of worldly emotion seeks to take away. Where's the rubber meet the road? There. The Bible gives us God's word, God himself, and Christ all as the perfect communications of the perfect state of every, communi- of every emotion. The Bible describes emotion as essential to our being, necessary for our worship, and even good for us. So, Christians, some of what you think you know about emotion needs to go. Remember, we studied Colossians chapter 2, a verse that describes how we might need to deal with emotion in our own mind. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to, hu- to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. Friends, Christ rules over your emotions, and when he doesn't, your emotions will neither be healthy for you nor glorifying to him. So be careful who you learn emotion from. Instead of the world, learn from God. Isaiah 42 is one of my favorite passages. And part of the reason is the emotion between God the Father and the suffering servant promised to Israel. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. You can read it all sometime, but just listen to the verse 1. Behold my servant. God the Father is talking. Whom I uphold my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Just stop for a moment and consider what God has said, why he said it, and how he said it the way he did. Is there no emotion in that passage? God, though immutable and unchanging in his transcendence, has has a display of emotion that is delight. It's perfect. It's eternally wonderful. And he says, I delight in my son. We saw this delight in Mark's gospel, if you remember. Mark chapter 1, verse 10, John the Baptist was baptizing Jesus and God the Father ripped open the heavens. In verse 11, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. God's delight in his son, his passion and love for his son causes a display like we don't see anywhere else in the gospel, this beautiful display of God's love and affection for his son. No one knew better than the father what was coming for the son. But there in that moment is the emotion of God displayed in affection and pleasure for his son. And yet for the ages, uh, deficient theology has caused stoic practice considering all emotion is bad emotion. If you believe that, you're not reading your Bible. If that was true, that all emotion is bad emotion, how could Jesus be sinless? When Jesus was living his life in the incarnation, he left a trail of love and delight and compassion and anger. When Jesus was angry on the Temple Mount at the money changers and the religious elite who'd effectively turned the Temple Mount into a Kmart, do you think his anger was a void of emotion? Of course not, but too often Christians look at every emotion as a bad emotion. Why? Well, we're the frozen chosen church. Heavens to Betsy, somebody raised their hand during worship. 
If our emotions are a problem, then our emotions are probably not the problem. Instead, it's those things within us that produce our emotion. Seeing emotion as what it is, it's an opportunity to live out the image of God that we've been created in. God has given us emotion so that we can use that emotion for his glory. We'll talk about that more as we work our way through, but I want to give us a working definition of biblical emotion. I'll steal one from a man who's greatly influenced my view on emotion, Brian Borgman. He says that emotions are an inherent part of what it means to be a person. They express the values and evaluations of a person and influence motives and conduct. We'll continue to flesh this out over the next several weeks, but when we look at emotions biblically, we see that it's way more than just feelings. Instead, emotions are reflecting or displaying our values. Emotions betray what we really, truly believe. And emotions are given by God as a tool that when rightly informed, they, they influence, influence us to godliness. You can imagine it like this. When, when you grow as a Christian, you start to see Christ as supreme. And you recognize who he is. You see his glory. You see with just amazement the wonder of who he is. The, the whole Colossians 1, 15 to 20 just sits in your mind. You see the beauty of what he's done. And you recognize that apart from him that you are dead. And you realize why you were dead is your sin. And you realize that your sin caused that one that you love to be sacrificed on a cross because of your sin. And without his sacrifice, you have nothing. What, what does that do in you when you view your sin after that? It brings about from you good, healthy emotions of hate and disgust for your sin. Emotions are not the problem. Emotions are good for us when emotions are informed by truths. Truths should cause us to feel certain ways. I know some of you just got the goosebumps. You know, it's okay. Feelings anonymous. My name's Bart. I used to be a stoic. Okay, I get it. But when we know the glory of Christ and the depth of our sin and the breadth of his work and the beauty of his sacrifice, what happens? We're repulsed by our sin that caused it. We hate it. Is that an ungodly emotion? Of course not. Our emotions towards sin becomes hatred, and that hatred of sin motivates and influences our conduct for the glory of God. Emotion is not the enemy. Lies are the enemy. Truth will bring about beautiful emotion. Lies will cause sinful emotion. God has given us emotions that flow from truth to bring about a passion and an energy that results in activity for his glory and for our good. Have you ever read a Christian biography that didn't include emotion? Maybe a Christian missionary biography. Do you remember that one guy who he uh, went to that one place that he had no emotion for and, and then God did a great work there? Of course you don't remember that. I mean, all, all, all you see in Christian biographies or missionary biographies is, is these people get saved, they fall in love with Christ, they love Christ so much, and then they hear about some place that doesn't have Christ, and their whole hearts and passions and emotions are all bent on taking Christ to where he's not known, and, and it's all driven through their emotion, but we look at emotion, and we're like, nope, can't do it, not here, we don't do emotion. But these people have a burning desire and an unquenchable passion, but surely it's not their emotion that's driving them, you say. What? 
Emotion's not bad. Bad emotion's bad, but bad emotion comes from lies. Truth produces good emotion. Imagine Hudson Taylor in 1800s England. China wasn't unknown to the world. Lots of people knew about China, but not lots of people knew the truth of who God was, the beauty of what Christ had done, the reality of depravity in China, and not lots of people had the passion well up in their hearts like Hudson Taylor had to take the gospel to where it wasn't known. That emotion came forth, and God used that emotion. It drove a man to godliness and changed the continent because of it. But out of hand, we dismiss emotion. My family's not emotional. Okay. You don't have to be ungodly like your family. You can have emotion. Just make it godly emotion. Be careful, Christian, to treat emotion as a spiritual discipline, to be informed by God and under the lordship of Christ. I love how Trimple Longman, he describes emotion. He says, emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart voice. What a beautiful thing for our emotions to glorify God. Can you learn these amazing truths about God and be unaffected? Can you learn about the beauty of who God is and think, cool, what's for lunch? Well, second, we should quickly examine the struggle. Where's the struggle what does the world understand to be the source and nature of your emotion? The world considers emotion as a product of something that has happened to you or something that has occurred inside you that you're not in control of. An extreme majority of world viewpoints on emotions takes a non-cognitive view of emotion. The non-cognitive view of emotion is generally an evolutionary type perspective that sees as our physiological change in feeling. That's what emotion is. Your heart races, you identify fear. Your palms sweat, you identify anxiety, etc. But the rub is we are subject to our emotions and not ultimately responsible for them. Emotions are something that happen to us, physically or chemically described, or in another way, they're outside of our responsibility. There is an internal or an external force causing us to feel a certain way so we don't have responsibility over our emotions. I know you expect this from me, but I'll be blunt with you. One of the largest problems with the emotions of modern Christians is that they have given up on listening to the Bible in the realm of emotions and purchased lock, stock, and barrel, whatever the world is selling about emotions. We allow a worldly understanding of emotion and feeling to remove our responsibility of being sanctified in our feelings and emotions. Feelings become just things that we can't help. You've heard that. Maybe you've said that. I can't help feeling that way. I just can't relax. I'm a high-strung person. I just can't stop worrying. Instead of considering opinions and beliefs in light of divine truth, everything becomes a matter of personal perspective and personal experience. And you can't speak into my personal perspective, nor influence how I have personally experienced things. Instead, uh, what is true? What is true is how I feel. And anytime someone declares how they feel in our culture, what must we do? We must say, okay, then that's good. Your feeling is your truth. We have no authority to interact with someone else's feelings. Their feeling is the standard. 
Instead of Christians asking, is what you think and feel true and righteous or sinful and false? We can't ask that question. That would hurt somebody's feelings. Instead of posing these kinds of questions, people say, I feel that, and it's an immunity clause in any discussion that protects me from anybody evaluating what I feel. Can't, can't understand, doesn't matter. I do. Can't, can't question my ideas, my values, my judgments, or my perception on reality because it's how I feel. What I feel is true for me. And true for me has replaced the truth of God which is why often emotional problems are not emotional problems. They are truth problems. And really, they're not even just truth problems. They're epistemology problems. Where does truth come from? Where do we find truth? We find truth in me, or we find truth in God's word. Therefore, my emotions can't be in question because I have defined my truth. This is how I feel, and I feel like this is true. Well, let's consider what the Bible says about that. The Bible has clear and calculated wisdom and warning for those who say, true for me is truth. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 7, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. What's true for me is truth. You see the difference? Proverbs chapter 18, verse 2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. What's true for me is truth. Or maybe the terrifying condemnation of Israel in the time of the judges, Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You realize that's not a statement on their politics. That's a revelation of their hearts. That was a Lack of truth statement. Israel lived like true for me is truth. God's people, though, find truth in him and his word. You say, but hold on, we're talking about emotions. Yeah? And emotions are an indicator of how I perceive any given situation. And how I perceive the situation is influenced by what I believe is true. And what I believe is true determines how I evaluate the situation. And what I believe is true determines how I evaluate every circumstance, how I value certain outcomes over other outcomes. What I believe is true determines how I understand difficulties and possibilities. What I believe is true determines how I perceive nearly everything. My emotions are products of my view of God, my view of His power, my view of His goodness, my view of His perfection. My emotions are the result of any situation or circumstance or physiological change combined with what I know to be true. The result of those things is emotion. Again, my emotions are the result of any situation or circumstance or physiological change combined with what I know to be true. But when we view emotions as the world does, we lose our opportunity to pursue godliness in our emotions because we set them on the outside of God's realm. So somehow God created the universe, God created you, God created me, he crafted our soul in our mother's womb, but he has no authority over my emotions. The world takes God's authority away from our emotions. The world gives emotional authority to natural processes or circumstances. How I feel is what is true. 
This view of emotion results in a common response to feelings and emotions the late David Pallison describes so well. He says in his book, Seeing with New Eyes, the ambiguous words, I feel, are commonly used in four distinct ways. The phrase speaks of experience, emotions, thoughts, or desires. Serious problems arise because the word is typically loaded with authority. If I feel like it, then it's inherently true, right, and valid. Clear biblical thinking pierces the fog of ambiguity and authority that wraps itself around feelings as minds and hearts are renewed by the Spirit's life-giving truth. Everything about us is touched. The source of our emotion is how we use God's truth to evaluate situations and circumstances. The more truth of God we know and think and really believe, the more our emotions will line up with God's truth in a way that glorifies Him in everything we do and everything we say and everything we think. And all those things, truth matters. It's all based on what we believe is true. Imagine if I think I can fly and I'm standing on a roof Will I make foolish decisions? Yeah. Consider this. If I don't know who I am in Christ, if I don't believe that God can forgive me, if I don't trust that God is good, if I don't understand that God is in control and I'm hidden in Christ, in Him, will those truths that I don't understand or lies that I do believe, will those fill my mind in a way that brings out problematic emotions? Absolutely. My emotions are in line with what I believe. The problem is not my emotions. The problem is the lies that I believe. Which is why, in contrast to the non-cognitive view of emotions the world provides, the Bible puts in front of us a responsibility to know and believe the truth and demands from us and our hearts that we foster appropriate emotions that follow in line with the truth of God. You cannot separate emotions out of the Christian life. Everything you say, think, feel, or do has emotion woven in and through it. You're emotional, and that's a wonderful thing because God created you in his image so you could glorify him with your emotion. You're responsible to glorify God with your emotions, and you're culpable for how you glorify God with your emotions. What's the struggle with emotion? In essence, the struggle is, are you responsible for your emotions or not? The Bible would say you are. The world would say you're not. We talked a lot about put off and put on in Colossians chapter 3. Put off the old self, Paul says. Put on, then in verse 10, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We have no hope for righteous living, righteous thinking, or righteous feeling without our minds being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. So third, let's consider how we can remedy our struggles with emotion. Because this is uh, the world so many of us live in, I'll begin with the world's proposed ways you deal with your emotion. Maybe some sort of therapy will be what you need to deal with your emotions. Therapy where you'll examine the past, and find the problem. The people in the past are often the problem. They conditioned you to learn the bad emotions. Or the people in your past acted on you in ways that produced something in you that caused this emotion to come from you. The circumstances in your past caused the bad emotions. We have to be careful here. Because the Bible is very clear 
that injustice will not go unpunished. So if bad things have happened to you, that's not okay. That doesn't mean you should just be able to, hey, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and move on. But it does mean you should look at those things in truth and recognize that God will finally and fully bring justice, but it's in his timing. There's no vengeance for man. It's all God's. So the problem with therapy, to some degree, it's, it's amoral. Talking about your past is not a sinful thing to do. It's fine. It can be good. It can be helpful. But in worldly therapy, you'll never address the real problem. And what is the real problem of your emotions? Truths or lies that you're believing or not believing in your own heart. Your own heart is the problem in your emotions. That's why therapy is inadequate. Lots of coping, lots of considering, lots of putting blame oftentimes where it belongs for other things and not your own emotions that are the problem. Lots of dealing with spiritual symptoms using non-spiritual tools. Maybe you'll hear about your, if you're trying to deal with your emotions, maybe you'll hear about your chemical imbalance and you'll begin a journey of trial and error to mitigate the effects of your emotions. But this alone cannot address the truths and the values that you're holding to that are causing your emotions to struggle. Maybe you'll hear about how certain parts of your brain were damaged by certain things that happened to you at certain times and how your brain's unable to function properly now. So the emotions you feel are not your fault, but a result of a glitch in the evolutionary process and your brain's reverted or stunted when difficulties come and you can't get out of this emotion. Christians are writing this in books and telling people this is truth. Friend, first of all, don't believe everything you read in a book that's written by someone who says they want to help you. Good intentions don't sanctify you. God's word and his spirit sanctify you. Good science doesn't sanctify you. God and his word and his spirit sanctify you. Much of what we see today in the realm of mental health is based on the same scientific principles and research and people that allow for men to be women and for third graders to switch genders. And we're going to trust them with our souls. Our country's lost its mind. And we're asking them for help when God has written his word and said, here's the truth that you need. I am giving you the help that you need. Come to me. I will help you. Some of you don't like that. My email is blake at gbchutch.com. <laughs> You'll hear lots of things from lots of people on how to help your emotions. Maybe it's from the angle of genetics or gut microbiome. They'll tout the excitement of new fields and how they have hope for helping you understand and conquer your emotions. But friend, whether it's through chemicals or probiotics or through psychotropics or through vitamins, when you only pursue the advice of the world, you're failing to account for the responsibility that you have in Christ to pursue emotions from him that are given to us by him. The truth of who he is affects our emotions. I recently had a conversation with one of you about the possible genetic link between a certain gene and depression. I hope they find it. That would be helpful. It wouldn't surprise me if they did someday. When the curse was given by God, surely our genes were affected. God knows the curse. We feel the curse. But identifying how the curse is affecting us doesn't change our culpability as believers to pursue the likeness of Christ in our emotions. Imagine it like this. Say someday they find the anxiety gene and you're a worry wart and you have the gene for anxiety. 
Well, you don't get to go to Matthew 6, 25, where Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious and cross it out. You can't take your doctor note to Jesus and say, I have the anxiety gene. He knows you do. He crafted you, created you. He gave you those struggles so that you could live for him in a unique and special way with all the struggles that you have to glorify him. Before you hate me and think I don't trust anybody in the health field, that's not what I'm saying. I think that every professional opinion in the health field is worth listening to, but it's worth running through the lens of the Bible, the scripture that it gives us, the truth of God. We're body and soul. Body and soul affect each other. Read Proverbs. It says that all over the place. Body and soul affect each other. Pursuing health is a good thing. Pursuing health, not idolizing health, but pursuing physical health will nearly always benefit spiritual health. And many physicians have great wisdom and great experience in helping with health. I mean, imagine if you're depressed and you eat RB's onion rings three times a week and you pick up Roy's on Saturday and you haven't eaten a salad since the 90s and then your doctor says, hey, you should probably work on your diet and maybe get some exercise in. Yeah, that's, that's great. And that's not anti-biblical. In fact, it's biblical. 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul would agree. He's arguing the Corinthians to understand how their bodies affect their righteousness. And he's, he's saying, especially with sexual purity, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. The principle carries, carries over to many areas of our life. We are body and soul. We sin with our body. We pursue righteousness with our body. We sin with our mind. We pursue righteousness with our mind. The problem with the world's advice in these areas of emotion is that it doesn't address the main problems of emotion. What's the main problem with your emotion? Don't take offense, but it's you. And it's me. How do we pursue truth? How do we deal with emotions that seem to defeat us and seem to take over us and seem to attack us? How do we deal with those things? Well, you've already dealt with something. If you're in Christ, you've already dealt with something way greater than any emotion. The good news of the gospel is that just the right time, Galatians 4, 4 to 7, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because your sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What a wonderful description of salvation from a loving and kind God. But here's what many Christians do to that description of salvation. They think, nah, it's too good to be true. Many in the church today have chosen the shackles of slavery to emotion instead of the freedom that comes with salvation. God has sent the spirit of a son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. You don't think God is concerned with your emotions? You don't think God desires you to be sanctified in your emotions? You don't think God offers sanctification to you in your emotions? You think that God has commanded you to have joy, to take heart, to forgive from the heart, to love each other with a brotherly love, to be fervent in spirit, all emotions? You don't think God has commanded you those things but provides no help for you in sanctification? Once we submit to the authority of God to command our emotions, we have to look to the provision of God to sanctify our emotions. And how do we pursue sanctification in our emotions? Well, first, you just heard it, understand God's authority. 
Hopefully you've seen God's authority to command our emotions. They're not products of evolution or environment. They were created by God for his pleasure, for our good. We pursue him and his authority and emotions. Second, we saturate ourselves with his example. We find his example all over his word. God not only gives us the truth that should inform our minds and renew our minds, like Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we find in his word his example for godly emotion. God's character is what God's word is teaching. God loves his people. He rejoices over his people. He mourns over their sin. He takes pleasure in their obedience. He has compassion on their frailty. A perfect, eternal, immutable God has these emotions. Second main way you see God's example is his son, Jesus. Jesus, Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You see in the life of Jesus, joy, delight, anger, sorrow, compassion, and love. Saturate yourself with the perfect example of emotion. I love the author to the, to the Hebrews or the preacher to the Hebrews. He, he tells them, Hebrews 3.1, consider Jesus. Or 12.2, fix your eyes on Jesus, or how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. What are we doing? We're beholding the glory of the Lord, and what's happening? We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We fill our minds with the beauty and the wonder of Christ, and what do we find is happening? That we are being transformed into His image. Don't just read a book on anxiety. Don't just read a book on depression. Fill your minds with the glory of Christ and see that glory transform you over time for his glory and your good. Third, submit to Christ's lordship over your emotions. We are wonderfully and fearfully made to think that we can chart the complexity of our emotions and determine how to solve them beyond the instruction of Scripture is a pride that man has been engaged in for millennia and every age is constantly showing the inadequacies of the previous age and all the time building the folly of their own. It's a fascinating mess. Jesus, though, is Lord over your emotions. Go to him and get from him what the world cannot offer, true and lasting hope and help. Too often the lordship of Christ is viewed as merely his control over us. That's like calling a s'more a burnt marshmallow. I mean, come on. Jesus' lordship is something that there's nothing better for us than his lordship over us. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible, the end of Mark chapter 4 and Mark chapter 5. It's a beautiful day of Jesus' life. Jesus displays his control and authority over disaster and demons and disease and death. And the stories are told to highlight Jesus' utter and total control over absolutely everything. His lordship over everything. In each case, his lordship is what delivers his people. His authority over disaster saves the disciples from drowning. His authority over demons delivers the demoniac from torment. His authority over disease gives the hemorrhaging woman hope and life from her distress. And his authority over life raises that little girl from the dead. You see, God is greater than all the things we fear. God is stronger than all the things that cause anxiety. God is bigger than all the things that hold on to us in depression. God is better than all the things that stir our envy. God is nearer than all the things we wish for in our loneliness. Jesus' lordship over our emotions is why we don't need to fear circumstances or worry about the future or wonder about the perceptions of other people or be bitter when we don't get our way because we're his. We're his. 
Nobody can take us from him. Nothing can come between us and him that hasn't come through him. He is Lord, not circumstances, not biology, but Christ. Fourth, skipping it. Come back tonight. Steve will do it with shame. Fifth, pursue godly growth in your emotions. Pursue godly growth in your emotions. We need to understand emotions biblically. They're not merely products of our evolutionary process. They're not merely chemical movements in our brain. They're not merely reflexes to our environment. They're an integral part of what it means to be human, that God created into us. They give us expression to our values, and they're a way that we glorify God. So be emotional. And we have to remember emotions are the, they're the thermometer. They're not the thermostat. They are informed by truth. They don't inform truth. So for many believers, our emotions, again, are not the problem. Our emotions are simply reflecting the truth that we really believe. Our misinformed or anemically informed soul is the problem. We have a puny little view of God and a tiny view of his character and a massive appreciation for ourself and our own wisdom. But a biblical understanding of the sovereignty of God and his faithfulness and his love and his steadfastness and his goodness is not only what our faith rests on, but it's how our emotional stability and joy and peace and the host of other godly emotions come to us. They're designed by God to sustain us as we pursue life for his glory. A biblical understanding of God helps us to see his goodness in our trials. A biblical understanding of God, who he is, causes us to trust him in the midst of doubt and believe him when the darkness is overwhelming. And a high view of God promotes godly emotions and godly feelings. No matter where we start on the spectrum of any emotion, sanctification is growing in the conformity to the image of Christ. So grow, Christian. In conformity of the image of Christ in your every emotion, that means the grace of God that saved me is the grace of God that I need more of. Because the grace of God that saved me is the grace of God that is training me to look more like Christ. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, we'll close there. Titus chapter 2, what happened when we were saved? Verse 11 tells us, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What a freeing and amazing truth. So simply and profoundly stated, God showed up in your life and saved you. I get it, more complicated than that, but this is the truth that Paul tells us. God showed up in your life and saved you. If you're suffering from emotions that are harming you, then run to the gospel that has saved you. Because the grace you find in the gospel that found you and saved you is the same grace that's ready to transform you more and more into the image of Christ. Look at the next verse, verse 12. The grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, which does not mean without emotion, but to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Our hope and salvation is the work of God. Our hope and sanctification is the work of God. Our hope in our emotions is the work of God. Emotions are no different than any growth in any other form of sanctification. Fill your mind with truth. Put to death emotions that are godly. Put on and live emotions that make much of the truth of God that he has taught you through his grace. And while we wait, look at verse 13, for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for his good works. May we be those people full of emotion 
and excitement and joy, looking forward to what only he can do, even in us now as we fight for his glory in our emotions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth and pray that you'll help us to find it as enough. Help us to see it as sufficient. Help us to realize what we need is more of you. We need grace upon grace. Grace that you've shown us in salvation and you offer us in sanctification. Help us. Give us a picture of you and your word, an understanding of our Savior that captures us and holds us and fills our mind with what real truth is, that it would come out in our life and the emotions that we live for you. We ask in Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.